First John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And Father, we do thank you for this passage. We ask you for your help now. And it's in Jesus name that we pray. Every Saturday night, I review, sort of, I kind of talk through the passage with Anna. She almost always has practical insight to help me kind of refine it. And yesterday, as we're starting, I'm going, are you with me? She's like, I'm like, it's good, but this is like a different sort of passage. And I'm not, it's deep, and I, I think I'm following you. And by the end, she's like, okay, this is getting, I'm, I'm seeing it. And, and the issue with this text, it is, it's difficult. It's not a historical narrative where there's a story and there's some, there's some humor that we can interject into it. This is lofty, heavy theological stuff that is super important for Christians to understand. I'm going to attempt to go slow, to speak clearly, to formulate my thoughts. Uh, But it's a lofty passage. And all week I hear Charles Swindoll in my head saying, I didn't preach this book for 45 years because my mama didn't raise no dummy. And I'm like, oh, what's it say about me, you know? And and wrestling with this, to kind of back up and review how we got here. The, the man who wrote this is the Apostle John. He's the only remaining apostle, the, the only one who still remains alive, that, that touched Jesus, that walked with him, that was taught by him, that spent much time with him learning. All of the other apostles had been executed, put to death, and now John is an old, old man in his probably young 90s to mid-90s, reflecting on his life and seeing the young church sort of sort of grow and he's seen uh, attacks against the faith come in saying that jesus didn't truly exist in the flesh his flesh was spirit he didn't leave footprints on the sea of galilee beach when he walked down it he was spirit and john's combating some errors of gnosticism he wrote his first book the gospel of john his story with jesus it's the last of the four gospels it's distinct from the other three john gives insight that the other three gospels don't give it, it's it's a different sort of style of writing and at the very end of the gospel of john chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 he writes the purpose that he wrote that letter he writes therefore many other signs jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book But these have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel of John, when we read that gospel, we know that every single verse, every single word ties into that purpose statement. Everything that he's, he's putting there, he's limited. And, and why he's writing is to move the person who doesn't believe in Christ as Savior to move them over into the camp where they believe in him and that they have life in his name. When we come to the smaller letter of 1 John, his goal isn't to convert anybody. This is sort of the follow-up letter. This is to those who have trusted in Christ to help them in their walk with him, that they would understand the truth, that they would be grounded in, in the things that God has revealed to us, that they would have assurance of their faith, that they, that they know they stand secure before God. He opens up this letter with these three first verses that are one sentence that essentially say that that we, meaning himself and the apostles who are all dead, that they saw Jesus, they, they looked at him, they heard his teaching, they touched him, they groped him is the word that a blind person would do in, in seeing with their hands, that they actually saw him, it really happened. And because of this, in verse 3, it says that they proclaim the word of life, the eternal life, Jesus to the readers so that they might have this fellowship with them, which is ultimately with the father, this fellowship, a word koinonia, which would be used by a, 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 a brand new married couple to explain the intimacy and closeness of their relationship, the bond between the two of them. This is the relationship that we can have with the Father. And he is proclaiming this message so that the hearers might have that fellowship. And then in verse 4, he says, I write this so that our joy could be made complete to see you walking with him. And now he's continuing in verse 5. And, and there's going to be this, this image, this word picture of light. Light is fascinating. It's it's one of these things that light has gotten me in trouble before. I have I have been beaten mercifully, merciless, wait, merciful, badly. <laughs> in this in the SEAL teams, if you're about to do a, a hit on the building and 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 you're in your training, not until after you've breached the structure and you go inside do you you flood the place with light so that you can see you expose everything. But in the walk up, man, those little flashlights, they're just, they're not switches. They're just pressure pads. And if you're out with your buddies and your light goes off, they call that an accidental discharge, a light AD. And if you do that at night, you will get, you have to, with all your gear, climb up, caving ladders, doing push-ups. You are beating that mistake out of you so that you're super careful because there's no hiding light when darkness you you cannot make light turn dark by shining a dark flashlight or a black light if there's light you can't stop it but now darkness you go into a dark room and you light a little match and the whole darkness is is gone away and so john is going to use this word picture of explaining god and in the fifth verse here he says this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. So he has this message. He, he's still using the we. 
And the we here is John the Apostle and all of the other apostles, all of those who walked and touched and heard Jesus' teaching some 60 years prior, that the message that they heard from him, they got this message from Jesus, they didn't create it on their own, and they announced to, to you, the readers, us 2,000 years later, it still applies to us. We announced to you what? That God is light. This, this impenetrable, this, you can't conceal his lightness. In the eternity past, there was this light that was shining bright. He goes on to say that there is no darkness in him at all. And so we see this contrast between light and darkness. And, and I begin to ask, well, what, what is this? And if you have any rudimentary understanding of the scriptures, we're familiar with the usage of light. But as we work through verses 6 through 10, I should have found a picture. But I have this image in my mind. You know those beautiful pictures where the sun is in the sky and there's clouds. And you see the light of the sun penetrating down and you can just see the beams of light going all the way to earth. Beautiful. Maybe you, maybe it's an image that you have in your mind from a gorgeous sunset and you, or the noonday in the, in the Midwest where they have real clouds. And it's just beautiful when you see the streaks of light coming down. And so verse 5, I picture this booming light. And, and the message of verse 5 really penetrates all of the verses right below it. So God is light. What does that mean? And in the Bible, when we come to a word that we don't necessarily understand what it means, you can look it up in the English dictionary and you're going to come, you're going to read and you're going to study and you'll see that light is light. How does it apply to God? Is he a, a super duper uh, non-green light bulb in the sky that just, you know, when you die, you see the light that everybody talks about? Is there more to it? And so to understand light, one of the things that you do is you go, well, did this author that wrote this book of the Bible, did he, did he use this term anywhere else in this book? Did he have other books where he used the word light? And this is where I lost Anna. This is where I want to be very clear. And I, I think it'll make sense at the end. But I want to look at what is light. When he says God is light, what does he mean? And so if you turn with me back to the to John, the gospel of John, the very first chapter, we're, we will look through this gospel and explore a couple of passages that, ex, that, that explain or show how he used light previously to help give us some insight. And so the whole focus of our little, our little journey through the gospel of John right now is to explore the meaning of light. So keep light at the front of your brain, sort of, if you see the word, kind of go, aha, there it's used. How is it used? What does it mean? And so in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, we'll back up a little bit, a little review from last week. And he begins with, in the beginning was the word. So before creation, there Christ was, in eternity past, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. So before there was creation, there was Jesus with the Father, always was in eternity past. And then 
stuff came into being. And if we read Genesis 1, the first couple chapters in Genesis, we'll see God spoke and stuff came into existence. And if you read the Hebrew, you'll see, and it's even translating the English, that when God speaks of himself, he speaks in the plurality. Let us make man in our image. So all things came into being through him, this Messiah. And apart from him, nothing came into being that had come into being. In him was life. John's already spoken in the first John about this word they proclaim is the eternal life, the word of life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He goes on, the light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here, this light from God shines into creation. And now at this point, this darkness, I don't think he's meaning that the trees and the stars, that they didn't understand the lightness. He's speaking of humanity, that they saw this light, Jesus coming to earth, and they didn't understand this light because they were darkness. They didn't comprehend it. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the baptizer. He came as a witness to testify about the light. So here John, this last prophet of the Old Testament, walks onto the New Testament pages, and he says, there comes one behind me, the Messiah. He's the light of the world. And he testified about this light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. This John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And if we go down to verse 14, we see that this light is being talked about Jesus. And so right away, we see this, this image that Jesus came to the earth, totally darkness, that man was, is totally depraved apart from God. Jesus, the Messiah, comes to earth. He steps out of eternity, takes on human flesh, and he shines the spotlight onto humanity. If we turn the page to a couple chapters over to John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. Jesus was there. It was at night. Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, one of the top guys of the religious organization of the day comes to Jesus at night and he, he doesn't ask Jesus a question. He says, certainly the things that you do are of God. There's, there, you, there's no denying that. But he humbles himself before Jesus. This one rabbi to another, he humbles himself to this teacher. And Jesus goes to the heart of the issue and he begins to explain to him that the whole issue is that God cares about relationship with man, but you have missed it. And then we get to verse 16. And this is Jesus is speaking about himself to Nicodemus. And he says, for God so loved the world, the world's not the, the world that we could touch. This is humanity, people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe 
has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. So going back to John chapter one, that this light, that the Messiah came, came into the world, this light and shone out amongst the world that they could see. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And I have this image. Have you guys ever been around like a lot of cockroaches? They're nasty creatures. I mean, this is, I mean, that is, if you don't believe in the fall of the world, that I think that that creature came into existence at the fall. Sorry if there's any cockroach lovers in here, you know, not to, but if you, if you, open a door and flip on the lights and there are cockroaches, they scat, they run for the darkness. And so when I read this, this is the image that comes to mind that Jesus, the light of the world enters into human history and he lets his glory be seen, his light to all humanity and sinful man sees this light and they run into the darkness because they love their sinfulness and they don't want to be exposed of this light. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. If he goes near the light, their their darkness is going to be revealed. And so if we hide and we go to the darkness, it won't be revealed and we won't see the darkness for what it is. Verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light. This is beautiful. Here's this little cockroach. And if you're in Christ, this is you, little cockroach. Like here we are, little cockroaches in our darkness. We see the light. We practice the truth. We we come to the light. And as we get close to the light, so that his deeds might be manifested, having been wrought in God. And this image of God taking this cockroach who's coming to the lightness there's still darkness but he's transforming him into the lightness it's this beautiful picture that jesus sees following this image of of god's light all the way to go over to john chapter 8 and in verse 12 this is one of these passages that i could spend a few weeks on John chapter 8 is one of those chapters that you go to when somebody says, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the Messiah. Say, ah, 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 go to John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, it's fascinating. The first 11 verses is the story where Jesus is out. This half-naked or fully naked woman is thrown into this room with all of these religious leaders. All of these men thrown in the room. This woman was caught in adultery. Hmm. Well, where's the guy? She's not here. It's a big setup. They throw her in and they're, they're all getting ready to stone her. Jesus kind of says, okay, you guys, you know, throw the first stone or whatever. And he bows down and he starts scribbling in the sand. And nobody knows what he was scribbling in the sand. There's all kind of suggestions like maybe he's writing names of other women that these guys were having affairs with or calling out their sins. But whatever he writes on the ground, it's enough to slowly cause these guys to, Ooh, I'm going to put down my rock and I'm, see you, guys, see you guys later. I'm out of here. And then he tells the woman, what, nobody killed you, huh? Well, neither do I. 
And it wasn't that he let her off because Jesus is still heading to the cross and he would pay the penalty for her sin. Her sin wasn't let off the hook. And so they all leave. And I think he wrangled up all of these Pharisees again. And that's where we come into verse 12. He says, then Jesus again spoke to them. I think that them is the Pharisees as we follow John 8 all the way through. He said to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So I'm the light. If you follow after me, you're going to be in the light. He, he goes through and we can't, oh, I would love to go through this whole chapter, but the, the 830 service will get all upset that we're still going. But he goes on to explain that his judgment is true, that he that they will die in their sins. Verse 24, therefore, I said to you uh, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 28, Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, this picture of the serpent with Mo, the look to believe when they lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing of my own initiative. It goes into this. They ask him a question and he responds. They're not happy with this Q&A all the way down to verse 58. Or we'll start in at verse 54. Let's start at 53. Sorry. (laughs) Let's get the context. They finally say to him, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And if you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. At this point, they're like, what are you talking about? So the Jews, and don't turn this into anti-Semitism. These are all Jews. These are all Jews in the story. They're believing Jews and non-believing Jews. It's not like the Jews are the bad guys and the non-Jews are the good guys. They're all Jews in the story. And the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders said to Jesus... You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Present, active, indicative. Before Abraham was born, there I was. The burning bush that Moses saw in the desert that was burning but not being consumed. What did God say? You tell him, I am sent you. That I exist. Jesus says, before all of creation, there I was. I am the light of the world. I am totally pure, totally holy. There is no sin in me. That when I enter into a room, my light is so bright that when man comes into my true glory, they respond like Isaiah in chapter six, falling on his face. Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. Peter, 
the great fisherman in Luke chapter 5, the very first few verses. You can go back to 1 John. But in this great story, Jesus, the crowds had become so great, they, they pulled up this boat so the bow of the boat was just on the shoreline. Jesus is sitting on the bow and he has his class before him and he's teaching the crowds. He looks over to Peter and he says, hey, I want you to send a couple boats just out a couple hundred yards and uh, throw some lines in and catch some fish. It's getting close to lunchtime. And, and, and Peter wasn't just a fisherman. He, he owned a fishing company. He had staff and crew and boats. Nobody knew fishing better than Peter. And he says, Jesus, we've been out fishing all night. The fish, the fish aren't, they're not here. They're not biting. We're not catching. They weren't, they had nets. There's, there was no catch last night. You now have this crowd of a couple thousand people. What do fishermen always say? Shh! You're going to scare the fish. You got all these people. Surely the kids are running up and down the water splashing. And Peter says, Lord, there's no fish. But I'm going to submit myself to you. And he says, hey, guys, go 100 yards out and cast a net just, just to be obedient to the Lord. And they cast this net. And it's the greatest. The boat starts sinking. They have so many fish, they can't get it in. Peter directs a couple of their boats. All the boats kind of work to get all of this catch in. And when this happens, what Peter does is he falls on his face. And he says, Lord, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man. The light of Christ penetrated Peter that he knew in that moment as a fisherman that this man who stood before him was the creator of the universe. And in him was so much light and so much glory that his darkness was exposed. And for to be in his presence, he knew required death for he was a sinful man. It's beautiful. And we need to feel that darkness. When I bought Anna her engagement ring, man, I was so nervous. I had my limit of what I could afford. We knew what we wanted. We, you can see her finger. She wears a ring today. You know her. But, but it's, we wanted small. I had this much money. You know, well, not, not this much. I had like this much money. <laughs> and I was like just nervous as could be. I walked into Robin's Brother Engagement Store. And I was just a sucker like the rest of them. I need an engagement ring. I've never done this before. I don't even know where to start. Like, well, we're glad you're here, sir. You're in the right place. And I'm like, man, I thought buying a car was bad. And so the lady like whisked me back into the private room and she has her little, I mean, she looked like a drug dealer, you know, all of her little rocks in there. And, and she's like, starts speaking whatever about the rocks. And I'm like, my adrenaline's going crazy. My mind is like swirling. Like, I can't believe I'm about to ask some girl to marry me. And then the lady throws the rocks on the table. And I'm like, they all look the same to me. I know you're, I, I know that some have more whatever and some have less whatever. They're all in the same price range. But they just look like they're different sized. And she's like, okay, sir. Just hang on a second. You're getting ahead of me. And then all of a sudden she turned off all the fluorescent lights and then there was just like one light shining straight down and she whips out this like black velvet cloth. And then she put one rock on there 
diamond, I guess, you know, a rock, <laughs> just a rock that costs a lot of money. And then the light shined in and it was like, wow, that black cloth made that stone look so beautiful. And see, the black cloth is so important. The, the, the first thing we have to understand is, as humans, is how black we are, how bad our darkness is. Because unless we have that understanding of our darkness, there's no need for a savior. There's absolutely no need for a savior if we think that we're basically good people. But the word says that God is light and he entered this world and his brightness penetrated everything. And we who are darkness, we flee. And so we come to verse five and the message that John says This message that we have heard from him, we the apostles, I'm the only one remaining, but I'm speaking on their behalf. We have heard from him and announce there's a word play in the Greek. This announce sounds very much like the verb used in verse three proclaim that we proclaim. We announce this to you that God is light, no impurity, no sin, holy Holy, holy. Nowhere in scripture do we see love, love, love describing God, but we see holy, holy, holy. When humanity encounters God, they fall on their face out of reverence, out of fear because their darkness and in him there is no darkness at all. And this truth penetrates these next five statements. There are five conditional clauses. There are five ifs. I would circle them. Every single verse starts with an if. And in verse six, if we say there's something subtle, but very significant here. He's still speaking in the first person plural. We. But it's, it's dramatically different than the first five verses. In the first five verses, when he says we, he says, we speak to you. We, apostolic authority, those who saw Jesus, heard him, touched him, can testify in court that they witnessed, that they saw what happened. And he's testifying to those who are much younger, those who weren't alive when Jesus was there. We're basing our understanding on their testimony. But now in these next five verses, he uses we, but it's all of us. And he includes himself with them. He's not the apostle preaching down at them. He's this 90 year old man who he was so transformed that he only saw himself as a man that Jesus loved. He says, If we say now trying to figure out how I I need to address these five, I've decided that I want to hopscotch through this passage. There are five ifs, five conditional statements. Three are negative, two are positive. Verses six, eight and ten are negative. They all say if we say. And then there's a negative connotation. The positive ones, seven and nine, say if we walk and if we confess, those are the good ones, positive. 
We're going to address the negatives. We're going to explore this darkness. Verse 6. If we. This applies to the Apostle John just as much as it applies to the brand new baby Christian who just accepted the Lord as their Savior. He, he includes himself with them. He, if we say we have fellowship, this koinonia, this intimate relationship with the Father... And yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We see truth come up in this passage. He says, if you are walking around and saying, you know what? I have koinonia with the father, yet your words don't align with your life, that your life is totally in the darkness. He says, you're a liar and you don't know the truth. Now, part of this that John's writing is so difficult, I, I, I don't think he's challenging anybody for not being a Christian. But, but there's like major, major, major conviction that comes through this. If we could turn back, I think there's some help here. If we turn back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I think Ephesians chapter 5, and kind of holds your place there. I think we'll, we might go back there a couple times. So Galatians, Ephesians Popcorn, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's not popcorn, but that's just the way I see it. Rick sees it a different way. General Electric Power Company or something is what he sees. So in Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, I think he begins to kind of explain this same truth in a different way. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 8 is one of the most offensive verses in the Bible. I love it. The first time I caught this verse, it was like, man, that is, that's kind of below the belt. But man, it's so true. It, it says, for you were formerly darkness. It doesn't say for you used to like hang out in the shadows. Like my understanding of humanity before I came to Christ and that, that people were basically good. And so that we were all just goodness. But if you kind of wandered off the path, you were light, but you kind of hung out in the shadows in the darkness. But Paul says before you came to Christ, you weren't in the shadows. You were darkness. You were opposed to God. You were formally, that's the key, were formally darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, live your lives as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Verse 10, highlight this one. This is the most encouraging little phrase of all of this. It says, trying to learn. This doesn't mean that you become a Christian and you've got it all figured out. I have difficulty, maybe it's because of my own past, of people that say, oh yeah, I was, yeah, yesterday I was a total, like, my whole life was a part, I did some really bad stuff and I've been doing stuff, but today I found Jesus and I'm, I'm perfect. It's like, oh man, it's been like a lifetime of this learning what is pleasing to the Lord. You're not expected to have it all figured out, but we're to walk in the light that we, we, we learn 
the light. We have this relationship with the light. And as you spend time with the light, you learn what things please him. And then you, not trying to earn your salvation, but because you love the light, you want to walk in the light. And so as we come over to back to 1 John, if we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that we're in this relationship with God, whoa, it's so intimate. And, oh, we're, God and I are so close. Yet you walk in the darkness, we're told that you're a liar. God is holy. He doesn't fellowship with darkness. There's no intimacy. Your relationship is broken. And I don't know if you've experienced this brokenness of relationship. John's going to address some difficult things like, how do you know if a person's saved? I don't know that I can answer that question. Because there are backslidden Christians, but then there are people who claim to be Christians that aren't even Christians. I think we treat them the same. But if you're in that camp, see, for me, I'd, I'd come to know Christ. And in, you know, in hindsight, looking back 15 years, I couldn't have told you then, I believe that I was a Christian. When I go back to like 96 through 99, I know that I was a believer now. But man, I was going to church. I was, I was communing with God on Sundays during worship. I would, I would feel this closeness as the word was taught. This relationship with God was being kindled in my heart. Yet on Monday night, I would be at Monday night football getting drunk. On Tuesday night, I'd be back in Bible study at Coast Vineyard. And we would have our Bible studies. And there I was feeling good again. But then on Wednesday night, I knew where the dollar beer specials and Thursday night were the were the whatever specials. And I was I had this total hypocrisy in my life going on. I claimed to have fellowship with the father. Yet I was walking in darkness and I was lying and I didn't have a handle on the truth. And, and this went on until this hypocrisy culminated to the point where I was so convicted that I realized I couldn't go on this path, but I didn't know where to go. And I kind of, in, in, in one sense, threw my talent with God and said, I want the truth of your word, but I'm so walking in this life. I don't know how to have victory, so I just have to stop saying I'm a Christian. I never stopped going to church. I never stopped. But in my heart, I kind of resigned. And from that moment, God grabbed a hold of me. I had tasted this fellowship with him. And I knew that my life and walking in the darkness was breaking this relationship with him. And he was working on my heart to bring me back into fellowship. We serve a wonderful God. Then we come down to verse 8. And verse 8 and 10 are so close in my, in my mind. He says, if we say that we have, I'm sorry, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin singular right it's singular there's just sin it doesn't say if we say we have no sins if it says it says we have no sin i I can hardly read this verse without laughing have you guys ever met somebody that said oh i'm totally not sinful at all like you're hard pressed to find that person most people are pretty reasonable and will concede that they have some sin somewhere you know even if it was when they were a little kid and they stole a candy bar but it says If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and you're cracking everybody else up because everybody knows that you're totally conceived in sin and are a sinful person. And the pride of you just smells disgusting that you can sit here and say that you're sinless, that you don't even have sin, that you've never known sin. 
You're deceiving yourselves and the truth is not in us. And I love that, that the apostle is still including himself in this camp saying, if we say, this is a humility from the teacher. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. You are so fooled. And the truth isn't in you because God makes it painfully clear. That no, not one is without sin. Only Christ is sinless. All of us, the sin stains us terribly. He goes on. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So not only if you don't have any sin, but if you say, well, I've never sinned and I have no, I haven't sinned. What you're doing is you're making God a liar because God has said through his word that we all have sinned. We all have missed the mark. We've all fallen short of his glory. We are descendants of Adam. We are born into sin. We have a sinful nature and it doesn't take long from the first time you gasp air to realize your sinful nature. I have a nine week old baby and you can see the sin nature because it's all about him. He wants to be held a certain way so that he can have his little, you know, it takes a while to learn that the world's not all about you. And if we say we haven't sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. And in all of this, okay, let's see here. These three, if you really study verse 6, 8, and 10, you can start to feel pretty helpless, realizing how black your cloth is. One of the sermons that, that started one of the great revivals in, the U, in U.S. history was a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards. And it was sinners in the hand of an angry God. He read it. And in his, like, in his red sermon, he describes this spider dangling over this consuming fire just held by one spider web. And he says, that's us with God. Now, I don't know that I would have used the title sinners in the hand of an angry God. I probably would have used the title sinners in the hand of a holy God because God is so holy and you can't contaminate his holiness, but we're darkness, but he's speaking to Christians. And so if we look at the positive verses, verse seven, the, the second, if in his, in his unraveling of things, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This is fat. This is. So if we walk in the light, God is light. He's already told us the proclamation in verse five that God is light. We've seen through his writings that Christ is the eternal light that came into heaven, came from heaven to earth. But then he says, if we walk, if our lives if we walk in the light as he himself, speaking of Christ, is in the light. He not only is the light, but when he came to earth and he lived his life on this earth, he's the perfect picture of what it means to live your life in the light. So not only is he in the light, but his example was walking in the light. And John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with the Father. No, it says, well, yes, but he says 
we have fellowship with one another, which is fascinating. I have a circle around that phrase with a line drawn up to verse 6, because it says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we're in the darkness, we lie. And so I would naturally think that when he gives this complimentary, that this, if we walk in the light as he himself in the light, we have fellowship. I would naturally assume that he would say with him. But what he says is with one another. Broken relationships are totally because of a broken relationship with God. We cannot have fellowship, koinonia. Fellowship isn't going to the Kiwanis and enjoying a meal with people that are in our community that you like. Biblical fellowship, biblical koinonia is a super special, intimate relationship that people share who have a united bond through Christ with this father. This, this relationship with the father suddenly puts me into this special relationship with those who share in this relationship. I don't care where you go in the world. You can't even speak the same language, but you meet somebody who loves the Lord. There's like a kinship there that is just that words can't express. And, and in your family, in your homes, in your relationships, if your fellowship with God is broken, sin just, oh man, it so affects every angle of our life. But if we walk in the light, if we walk with God, we'll have this koinonia relationship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I, I've got to dive into the Greek here. It's, or even in the, the English, it's fascinating. This is where Anna starting to roll her eyes at me last night. But she's like, no, 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 this is, that, that is. See, cleanses, this, ver, this verb, this, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin it's not past tense it's not something that happened back then in the perfect that has ongoing effects it's in the present active indicative this means that as we're walking into the light we're constantly being cleaned that if you're in christ and you're walking presently today his blood is cleansing you have you guys seen that commercial i don't know if it's tied or whatever the super duper soap detergent that you put in and it keeps the brights bright and the whites white. And, and then they, they dunk the thing in the water and you see the cycle of the soap having its action and you see all of the dirt and grime kind of breaking away because they're trying to sell a product. We are stuck in the wash cycle that Jesus's blood is constantly cleansing us. It never ends while we're on this earth. He's constantly present active indicative cleaning us through his blood and it's a hallelujah how wonderful how glorious how marvelous is the word that's why i don't lead the music if we walk in him we're stuck on this wash cycle his blood is cleansing us down to verse nine if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us now, this is in the errors. This is a snapshot. See, we're clean. In Christ, when you, as Ephesians 1.13 says, after hearing the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, when you believed, you were sealed with the Spirit. You were set apart. You are clean. We are clean. We are good before God because of the blood of Christ. We also are being clean day by day. This could get confusing. 
This is where Christians get confused. Can't lose your salvation. This, this issue is a theological term called sanctification. There, there are three aspects to sanctification. There's positional sanctification, which states or which means that once you believe in Jesus, the spirit seals you. You are in Christ. You're no longer in Adam. When God looks at you, he no longer sees your sins. He sees that the blood of Christ has cleansed you, had made you new. You're secure for eternity with him positionally. Then there's progressive sanctification. Just because you've been placed into God's camp through faith in Christ doesn't mean that you have all the kinks worked out. We still have our fallen nature that we struggle with. And as we walk in the light, as he cleans us, we become more and more like Christ. And I can assure you that if you met with Billy Graham, one of the greatest Christians that's alive today, probably right now by some people's estimations, he's 93. He's led more people to Christ in human history than we know. And I guarantee if you talk to him and say, hey, have you attained sinlessness yet? He'd say, oh, no, I'm a wretched man. I am a wretched man. We see it in Paul's life, in his writings. He, he refers to himself three times. He goes from, I'm the least of, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the, I'm the worst sinner of all. And then he says, I'm the worst of all humanity. And it's not that he's getting worse. It's that he's coming into this greater understanding of how light God is. And so the final part of sanctification, I know in seminary they say it's like taking a sip of water out of a fire hydrant, and I'm probably doing that to you guys right now, is there's ultimate sanctification. See, when we die, we'll be totally sanctified. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more stain. We will worship him fully and completely. There'll be, we will see him fully as he is. And so this whole process that we see between verse 7 and 9 is that we walk. He's cleaning us. As we sin, we confess our sins. He's, as we confess them, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as I'm reading, how does this work? And where I want to end is Psalm 32, David. This great man of faith. In Psalm 32... It's believed that this is recounting sort of his little his little incident. David, who's described after the man of God's own heart, he's recorded in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of the faith. You would think in reading those passages that this guy was the most perfect man of God that never made any mistakes. But you don't have to read too far into Samuel to realize that he had some shortcomings, namely with Bathsheba. It's been said that he broke nine of the Ten Commandments. And that one thing, it was catastrophic. But Psalm 32, I believe, helps us to understand why he's described as a man after God's own heart. It wasn't because he had attained ultimate sanctification, that he was free of sin. But we see, how did he deal with his sin? And in Psalm 32, verse 1, it says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's a hearty hallelujah, amen. If your sin has been forgiven, you are blessed. 
Ephesians 1 tells us that we as Christians have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 3 is the key. This is a lesson that we need to learn. Because see, David's incident with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of verse 12, a whole year has elapsed. And I believe he's writing this after chapter 12. And to refresh your brains, David got Bathsheba pregnant. He came up with a ploy to try to, to, to show that her husband did it. He brought her back, him back from war. He, he wouldn't be with his wife while his men were at war. So he slept at the door. Then David said, well, I'll get him drunk. And surely a drunk guy will go in with his wife. Still, he didn't do it. Then David basically sent him with a note, his execution papers. He says, have them advance deep into the war zone. Then as soon as he's there, pull everybody else back but him and have him killed. David's sin was great. He took Bathsheba as his wife. There would be long-lasting consequences. A year goes by. And I believe during this period, David said, I have fellowship with the Father. Yet he's walking in darkness and he's in this turmoil of hypocrisy. And in verse 3, I think he's describing this time. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, David had this sin. He's trying to hold it down. His, his, there's physical consequences to the sin that he's trying to keep secret and hidden. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. The light of the Lord was just pressing down on his darkness. And man, I've been there. And I, if you're honest with yourself, we've all been there when when we recognize God, God's hand, his light, and we have darkness that we're clinging on to, oh, heavy upon us. My vitality was drained as with the fever of the heat of summer. Oh, it got so bad. Then Nathan shows up. And in this confrontation of Nathan to David, we see the beauty of God's kindness towards us, graciousness towards us. David tells the story about, oh, there's this little boy that has this little lamb. His little lamb that slept in his bed. He only had one, and he raised it like a puppy. He was a part of the family. Then this shepherd who had, you know, a gazillion sheep comes in, steals this little baby goat, and he slaughters it. This whole message is striking the heart of David, who is a shepherd at heart. And he said, who is this man? We need to kill him. And then Nathan says, it's you. With Bathsheba. A year later, he's had to stew on this. His sin just exploded in his face. But in verse 5, how did David handle it? I acknowledged my sin to you. We see Psalm 51, the great letter of repentance following the incident of Bathsheba. I believe that letter, that psalm, and this psalm express why David was a man after God's own heart. Not that he was perfect, but when he sinned, he knew how to get right with God. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And it wasn't that he was let off scot-free. Don't just don't get it in your minds. The Bible is one book with one theme of redemption all the way through. It wasn't that God said, oh, okay, I'll just, 
I'll turn my eye to that. We'll just forget about it. We see the promise of the Messiah back in Genesis at the fall of man. Jesus paid for his sin, but he looked to the father in faith that he would send the ultimate sacrifice. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Catch that. Surely let every person reach for him at a time when he may be found. This flood of waters, Noah, that little incident, you know, when the flood came and everybody was wiped away. Life is short. And this is a day, this week in particular, I had two friends killed at the embassy. Not really kind of when you're in that line of work, it's okay. It happens to the best of us. We, when we... I had two friends that were killed at the embassy. They're doing a line of work where it doesn't necessarily catch you off guard. But then there was a young man, a pastor at Ridgeview, 21 years old. He dies. It looks like it's totally natural related that his heart, like something gave out. Rick's daughter, Teresa, had a dear friend that was killed out on a car accident. We don't know. Like that's likely we'll all live our happy lives with whatever time God gives us. But when David writes to us, he says, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when he may be found surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him because once you're dead, it's over. It's, it's never too late to start doing the right thing. And if you have a sin that you've been holding on Christian, God wants you to confess it to him so that his blood will restore you, will renew you, will make you white as snow. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 32, the whole thing shifts and God responds to David. And God responds, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Remember what we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse was like 10? That we would learn how to walk in the light. That we would learn what's pleasing. And then God here says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you will go. Like, I'll be your helper. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And I see this. And when I read that, I see Daniel Morales. And it cracks me up. Because when Alberto was in the hospital and he was on the ventilator, he he was definitely coming together. And Daniel was there. And Alberto's hand like came up and they thought he was going to try to rip it out again. But Alberto's like, I'm not going to, but he can't talk. And Alberto reached for his thing and Daniel like jumped in and was like, no dad. And he's like, oh man, but my dad, it was like flashbacks was like a kid. His eyes looked at me and he kind of was like, "Uh oh, and then his dad like reached up. scratched himself but then daniel was like cracking me up he's like man my dad he just has to like look at me and he's he says so much through his eyes and he can instruct me with his eyes and i see that i will counsel you with my eye upon you like that the fathers from heaven is like eyeballing us giving us instructions cueing us through the spirit do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding whose trappings include a bit and bridle to hold them in check otherwise they will come near otherwise they will not come near to you 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround, surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in the heart. John is a joyful book. We're going to end with a song. I, like As I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, we have to sing that, that good old boy country song that we do. Because it's happy. And I'm like, I wonder if we're in there. And I look, and Rick had put it in the first part. I'm like, no, we got to end with this song. The ice, I saw the light. You know, we clap. Amanda, you're, you're going to help us out. Amanda's going to help us out with a clapping. But it's like this joy of like, I found the light. And instead of running, or maybe you ran, but now you've come to the light. And there's great joy knowing that the blood of Christ has not only cleansed us, but is presently cleansing us. Maybe you have sin that you need to confess to restore your communion with the father and with your spouse, with your siblings, with fellow believers. We know through the scripture that Jesus says, if you're at the altar and you're going to worship the father, but then a sin that you did that you need to go restore. He says, leave your leave your offering there and go make peace with your brother. But that's a message for another time. And Father, we praise you that we've seen the light. Father, we thank you that as we ran from you in our darkness, Lord, we thank you that you're patient with us, that you chase after us, that you pursue us, Lord, and that you've brought us into the light, Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in the light. Father, help us to let you um, do your work in us. We submit ourselves to you. Father, we rejoice that this cleansing of the blood of Jesus, Lord, is is continual. That as we speak to know that you are sanctifying us through the blood of Christ, that you're washing us white as snow. Father, help us to truly live joyful lives knowing that we are blessed because you've forgiven us in Christ. We love you, Father. We praise you and we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.